The following sermon is presented by Pastor Derek Ward of Harvest Bible Chapel, Barbados. For more information about Harvest, visit our website at www.harvestbarbados.org. As we pick it up from last week, we finished last week at, chapter, at verse 8 in chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up this week and we're going to see what the text is telling us starting at verse 9 and going right down to the end of chapter 5 down to verse 14. And today we are going to learn, hopefully we will learn, that God opposes the proud and arrogant. So let's stick a pen for a moment and I need you to do one thing and ask yourself a question. Is he talking to me? Am I proud and arrogant? Maybe we are. All of us are at some point in time. As we explore this whole idea of God opposing the proud and the arrogant, it's going to come out very clearly from the disposition of Haman, the character who was now the vizier of King Ahasuerus, who ruled in the Persian Empire. Whether you are here in this building or you are jumping on online, I want to encourage you to follow along in the text, get your Bibles and follow along in your text and make some notes. And let us be intentional about our growth as students of the word of God. So picking up at verse 9 and follow with me, the Bible says, And Haman went out that day joyful and full of, or joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife's arrest. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeres and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hang upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Father, this is your word. Lord, I, I trust that because of your sovereignty, this particular portion of text was placed there for our understanding we recognize, oh God, as we read your word, we don't just read your word as a casual exercise, but we read it for application. We read it so, Lord, we can change our lives. So I pray, Lord, as we speak through this text today, Lord, that you would convict our hearts where there's conviction to be given. And, oh God, that you would restore us to a place where we can walk in your favor and not walk according to our own steps and our own direction. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, the book of Esther, like every other narrative in the Bible, is best read and understood when you read it completely true. So by the showing of your hands, is there anyone here who have read the complete book of Esther? You've read the complete book. 
Okay, we saw one hand in the back, another hand, hands just popping up around. Right, you've read the complete book. All right, let's, let's, let's do that test again. How many of you have read the complete book of Esther within the last month? All right, there we have a few hands popping up, popping up. Now, I want to encourage you to just go home today and read the entire book of Esther. It takes about 25 minutes or so to just read through the book. It's a short novel, you know, it's a narrative. You just read through the book, it's one nice story to read. However, for the purpose of study and application, we break all our books down into chunks and we preach what we call expository sermons. Because we want you to be able to connect the dots from place to place. Now, I've seen many preachers who preach through the book of Esther. And one friend of mine, I know very personally, he, he preached the book of Esther in one sermon. All of it. One sermon. What? And he, he, he figured people got it. And that was good. People probably got it. But how we want to do is to take it slowly so that you can soak it up. And you can go home and you can reflect and say to yourself, I see myself in the text and I need to do something about it. So today we are talking about God opposing the proud and the arrogant. Here, starting in verse 9 of the text that we've just read, we see the focus of the story switching to Haman and his internal disposition. What these verses will highlight is the demonstration of pride and arrogance in Haman's behavior. So, like any good school teacher, I will give you some definitions to work with. So let's start with pride. Pride, my friends, is the feeling. You feel honored. You feel as if something has been happening to you. So you are honored. You are satisfied or you are happy about something. You're happy about something that is happening. I'm saying that all of us have an element of pride because there are times when we feel honored. When you, when you receive a promotion or you receive a compliment, you, you feel honored. You feel good about it. So in itself, it is not a bad thing. I, I, I feel a sense of pride when my children achieve and they do great things. So it's not really a bad thing by itself. But sometimes pride can take hold of our lives and take us to a place where we don't want to go and we become arrogant. So like that, we will define and say that arrogance is excessive pride in oneself often with contempt for others. It is where it's like, do you know who I am? So you've seen all your achievements and it, it seems to get you to a place where you are so proud in yourself that nothing else matters. I'm the best trumpet player in Barbados when I'm in my bedroom all by myself. But you, you, you don't see anybody else around you because you are the best at what you do. My friends, it's important to understand that pride and arrogance are primarily selfish and they are diametrically opposed to the Christ-like attitudes and behaviors we as believers are called to manifest. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, and 3 to 5. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourself, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we must be Christ-like. And Christ was in nowhere, or no way, arrogant. If there's anybody who could afford to be arrogant, it was Christ. He had it all. He was it all. But he demonstrated humility, even to the point of death. My friends, the end goal of this particular sermon is to produce believers who can identify and steer themselves away from proud and arrogant attitudes that destroy not only others, but ultimately destroy yourself if you don't surrender to Christ. So, as I set the tone for this particular sermon, it is critical that I present some of the attitudes of a proud and arrogant person and maybe you might see yourself in this, and it's quite all right. The reason for seeing yourself is that you can change. Because I'm telling you, when I was prepared, as I saw myself in some of these things, I was like, oh God, how can I get up and preach this? Because we are called to preach the hard stuff and the easy stuff. I don't preach things that are easy for me and hard for you, and then when it gets hard for me, I skip it. I, I preach every word. So I'm going to present eight characteristics, eight traits of a proud and arrogant person, number one, they subconsciously regard their time to be more valuable than others. So they do that by either being very late so you see when they come in, or they're very early so they can boast that, you know what, you know what, I was here early, where was everybody else? We had some friends years ago who we attended church together, they would come to church late all the time, always late for church, always late. And this one day they got to church early and they, they, they started to condemn everybody who came after them. Well, how can you be so late? And people were like, what? You're always late. But this one day that they're early, they were like, why, why do you come to church so late? No, what? Nobody wanted to hear them. Because they regard their time to be more valuable than others. Number two, they have very little regard for the opinion of others. What you have to say doesn't matter. Just hear what I have to say. Mine is more important than yours. Number three, they believe that they are better than others in terms of their looks or their intellect or their status. They throw their status around. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I have achieved? You have two certificates in life, one already and one to come, birth and death. I have four master's degrees and some juices from PhD, Pine Hill Dairy. I have all of this and I have, and they threw that around. I remember when I was recruiting to be in the military, I, I, I got a star for excellent work. You know, I was the first man on the course to get a star. You know, it means that I came first in the exams, and I will walk around with my chest up so people can see my star. And one day the commandant come and says, as easy as the star went on, it could come off. He had to put me in my place. They felt I was better. Number four, proud and arrogant people go to extremes to offer an explanation for them being right. So, so I'm not just telling you I'm right. I will explain why I'm right. You sit and listen. This is the explanation. Number five, 
They focus more on position or title rather than on the purpose for their task. So they do not care what the task was. My title, my title, my position is important. Not doing squat, but I'm important. Number six, they easily say yes when they ask to do something. So they don't want to say no. Oh, yes, 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 I, I, I can, I can. So they, they either do it because they want you to, to, you know, say good things about them or they say yes and then don't do it anyhow. And then they make an excuse because, you know, I have something more important to do. After all, I'm important. Two more, number seven. They consider people that they don't like to be their enemies or to see them as a threat. That's a serious place to be. So you're the CEO of the company, but you see the janitor as a threat to you? So you put big rocks in the road to hinder them from moving forward? For as long as I live, I'll hate you. It's the type of language that comes out of their mouths. And finally, I mean, there are a lot more. I just chose eight, but finally, they have a hard time self-reflecting. Even when they're self-reflecting, they don't see themselves. They don't see their flaws. You know, the Bible speaks about that, who sees uh, the speck in somebody else's eye, but can't even see the plank that is in theirs because they have a problem self-reflecting. All they see is excellence. They see, oh, good, look at what God has made when he made me. After God made me, he threw me the mold. There's nothing else out there like me. Those are some of the traits. In this text today, as we will go through this text, we will see some of these traits manifesting in and through Haman. This account begins with Haman leaving the private banquet, which was hosted by Esther. And she hosted the banquet for her husband, the king, and for Haman. Though the banquet was a part of a plan to share some disturbing news, Haman was clearly oblivious to it. And he simply thought that he was honored to be having lunch with the king and the queen. Little did he know that the queen was a tactician. She was very tactical, so she called him to a feast and she fed him and she said, oh, come back tomorrow, we'll talk some more. The Bible says he leaves in this verse 9, he leaves joyful and glad of heart. This joyful attitude in and of itself is not a bad thing. As any one of us may feel the same way if we were invited to eat with some really important figures in our society. I've had times when I felt honored to be around the table with some people, and I know there, there are times when people felt honored to be around the table with me, and there, there are times when, you know, we, we all, some, you are always in a position where somebody may feel honored to be with you, or you feel honored with somebody else. So there's nothing wrong with feeling honored. But the text doesn't stop there. The text goes on. It says, but when Haman saw Mordecai, when he saw him, so he meant he leaves. <laughs> Just it with the king and the queen. I'm special. And he sees Mordecai. The Bible tells me that this outward display of happiness is very short-lived. For he immediately became filled with wrath against Mordecai on merely seeing this Jew sitting inside the king's gate. My friends, this swift change in his disposition tells us much about Haman. His happiness was circumstantial. 
It was based on being in the presence of the king and the queen. Because his happiness was externally stimulated, it did not last long. Note this, my friends. The satisfaction that depends on worldly honor and worldly glory can be extinguished easily. The satisfaction that depends on earthly honor and glory can be extinguished swiftly, easily. <laughs> I pondered on this man, this one verse, verse 9, I started to ponder on him and I recognize that from a mental health perspective and I've worked in mental health for a while, I wasn't the patient, I was a, a therapist, I helped those, because you might think that I was the patient, yeah. But from a mental health perspective, Haman would have been diagnosed of being emotionally unstable. He could have been diagnosed of being temperamental, or should we use Lehman's terms, he was simply moody. He go through a range of emotions, he was like up today and down tomorrow, and I mean, these psychiatrists might call that something else. However, it's important for us to understand that his emotional unstableness was not a result of a mental health issue. It was a result of the pride and arrogance within him, as we will unravel in this text. Haman's disposition changed from happiness to wrath merely because he felt dishonored by one man in the entire empire. One man and your disposition is changing so quickly. Thousands are bowing before you. Thousands are saying oh hail Haman second in command to the king. Oh this and this. All this glorious stuff. And one man causes your disposition to change. He moves from happiness to wrath. Well, what is this thing called wrath? When we were talking, we were talking to James, we spoke about wrath when it says be, be slow, to, be quick to hear and be slow to speak and be slow to wrath. We spoke about that. Wrath, my friends, is defined as fury or rage. That is a very strong feeling of displeasure, hostility, and antagonism. And is usually expressed in relation to a wrong, whether real or imagined. You're wrong, don't have to read. No, you just got to imagine that somebody do something wrong, you get angry, you're upset. And you start to, to lash out at people because you imagine. So you walk past some person in church and, and, and they didn't speak to you. So you start to imagine that they got issues with you. So you start to have issues with them. The person was just praying, you know, they didn't even see you, they were praying. But you imagine stuff. And you go on to a place of wrath. Haman's unstableness is a result of pride and arrogance. I've said that. His wrath is motivated by the fact that Mordecai neither rose, the Bible says neither rose, nor trembled before him. He surely has an elevated position in the empire. No one is higher than him except the king. What more could he ask for? The only thing left for him is to become the king. Yet one man's refusal to bow and to honor him ticked him off. He was the vizier. Remember I said that? He was the vizier. Now, 
the word vizier is like the word czar that we had recently in COVID. But the vizier's paramount duty was to supervise the running of the empire, much like a prime minister, and often acted as the, as the king's seal bearer. In other words, this person had the authority to seal things on behalf of the king. So when he made a statement, he sealed it. You need to remember that doesn't come back shortly. When he sealed it, it was as good as if the king himself made that statement. Picture this. Where's, 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 where's my friend? Uh, picture this, Sicily. Uh, so I got that from Nigel. Who got that from TV? But picture this, the whole of Persia from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces are under his charge with thousands of officials to supervise and one little old man who refused to bow, to bow one little, little man robs him so badly that he'll be angry to the point of wrath. Let's stop for a moment and ask you some questions. What's that one little thing that gets you ticked off? A one little, little, little thing. I can handle all this big stuff, but this little, little thing gets me upset. Maybe it's that when you pick up the phone and call somebody that didn't answer on the first ring. The first ring. You know it rang on your phone before it rang on theirs? Your second ring was their first ring? What, what took you so long? Maybe it was that we were at a function and somebody says, oh, all right, cool. You have to go now. Just like that. <laughs> no lead up to, you be leaving in 15 minutes. It's just cool. Let's go now. And that takes you off. Maybe it's that during COVID, your husband decided to put his razors on a break and he didn't shave, so he looked like a werewolf. He oh, ticked me off. I wish you would sleep in my lap so I could cut your hair. Hmm. Note this, my friends. When one elevates their position, over their purpose. No, last week it was the other way, elevate purpose over position. But when one elevates position over purpose, it can, not it will, it can result in the development of pride and arrogance. And it can cause you to be emotionally unstable. So having heard all this is my first challenge for you today. First point on your page, you might want to write this down. I give you all the explanation first, now is the point. Be emotionally stable. What am I saying? I'm saying don't be temperamental based on external stimuli. Don't let things outside of you stimulate you to the place that you are so emotionally unstable. Haman was happy to be with the royal couple and suddenly filled with wrath at the sight of a low-level employee. Who was at the king's gate? Not even inside, but at the king's gate. Haman did not display a sound temperament in the face of external factors. His belief that he was better drove him to a place of anger, to a place of wrath. Why won't this man bow to me? 
He don't know who I am. It wasn't a Jew at the gate that bothered Haman, you know. It was Haman who bothered himself. The Jew at the gate was just doing his own little thing, you know, and not do it, Haman. But Haman was more interested in himself and how, how people bowing made him feel. And, and, and all these people bowing, you don't want to bow? Haman the Mordecai came from a line of strong Jews who knew not to bow to false gods and all these other things that were set up. My friends, an arrogant person could have the world of possessions, have everything, but still focus on that one thing that somebody else has and they want it. You're not satisfied with $46,000 million in the bank. You see a man down the road with a little chopper, a bicycle. Ah, you can afford to buy the store that makes the bicycles, but you want his bicycle. You know, we've been socialized to think that way. That we grow up and we, we go and play cricket cross the road there with the fellas and, and it's my bat, so I got, I, got, I got a bat first. So you go and you bat first and, and, and you get out. It's my bat, so I got a bat second. So you're a team of one. You got bat 11 times before somebody else. And if people say it can't work, it's all right. It's my bat, so I go home. Carry home the bat. And that's how the socialization has brought us to the place where we start to behave like here, man. It's mine, so I want it. Socially, emotionally, sorry, unstable. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says to us that he was able to restrain himself. I, I said, oh. When you reach a point of wrath, when I reach the point of wrath, I don't, I don't have your pull. That's easy, you know. When I, I got I to follow through like a plane. When I reach that point, I have to take off. But Haman restrained himself. So that, that sounds like something good. He restrained himself. But this act of restraint does not change the fact that he was arrogant and full of pride. As we will soon find out, his restraint wasn't the uh, abatement of his anger. Look at what he does. He goes home and he whines before his wife and his friends. He goes, yeah, yeah. Imagine all of this. He's starting to whine. My friends, is at this point that his wife, listen, fellas, we need to have good wives who will tell us the truth. And wives, you need good husbands who are going to tell you the truth too. It was at this point that his wife just said, listen, grow up. Stop behaving like a child. Stop throwing tantrums over a little, little fella out there by the gate. He wins to his friends and his wife. But the poor to giving him good advice, his wife and his friends start to give him some good advice. My friends, the, we need to be emotionally stable. And we need to display a sound temperament in the face of external stimuli. Haman wasn't demonstrating this at all. He wasn't emotionally stable. He allowed everything to fight him. At verse 11, at verse 11, look at what he does. He recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions, the honor, all these things he's, he's, he's telling them. Zares, Zares, look, look, this is what have happened. I have all these riches. 
Nobody else richer than me save the king. Look at that. So many sons. Three from you and none from the other people. They got enough sons. He talked about his promotions. I've been constantly promoted. That's his status, man. If that was enough, he even boasted about his privilege. He said, listen, I'm a privileged man. Nobody else but me. Nobody else but me got to go to a feast with the queen and the king. When the king and the queen are having a feast, nobody else gets to come, but I got to go. So he's talking about his riches, his sons, his positions, his status, his privilege. He says, not only that, the queen want me to come back tomorrow too? I special. Haman has allowed his achievements to go to his head. Proud and arrogant people delight in their achievements, their titles, their positions, and their status. They beat their proverbial chests while gloating and presenting a sense of importance. I am important. Unlike what we have heard last week, Haman was elevating position over purpose. I'm here to challenge us to always give credit where it is due. My friends, we didn't get anything based on ourselves. We've all been to school, and yeah, we did some exams, and we probably passed them, and, and you think, oh, you see that? I passed all my exams, I got grade ones, and I got this. Not on yourself. God has given you the ability to study and to retain. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8 and verse 18, he challenged your children of Israel to remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as, as it is this day. Moses is telling the children, Israel, don't think that you can achieve this on your own. God has given you the ability to, 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 to achieve wealth. My friends, all that we have and all that we will ever get has been given to us by our Heavenly Father. Everything. Allowing the circumstances around us to influence our disposition is surely a trait we don't want to manifest. So be emotionally stable, even in the face of external stimuli. Here's my second challenge. Be humble. Doesn't matter what you have. I met a guy years ago, an older guy, and very humble guy. And would do anything, you know, just get involved, got his hands dirty. And one day he had to speak at a function, and, and I used to operate the screens that time. I was the projectionist. I would put all the stuff in the computer. I would do that stuff. And uh, I had to get his profile, and I had to make points to put on the screen about his profile. And when I started to read this man's profile, I couldn't believe it. I was like, gosh, this man has two PhDs. This man had all of this. The man had honors from the queen. And, and I mean, a whole list of all these accolades. So I, I put all these things up on the screen and all that I thought were important. And when he finished his speech, he came to me and says, all you need to put on that screen was my name and put after that servant of the most high God. What that man demonstrated to me is that all the titles and the accolades and stuff didn't mean anything to him. Yes, they were on his profile, they were on his bio because it meant some, somewhere, it meant something. But to him, it didn't mean that. 
That man showed me what it was to be humble. When you're humble, you don't let your achievements go to your head. As we've heard in the words of Deuteronomy above, it is God who gives us the power to gain wealth. Listing your achievements makes no sense unless you are acknowledging the one who has given them to you. I'm not talking about acknowledging the one from a place of gloating. You know, he says, look what God has done in my life. You see what God has done. I'm not talking about that because people can put God in the whole story, but they're still gloating. That's not humility. Throwing your titles around for human recognition is not humility. Listing your degrees as a way to overpower another is not humility. Write this down, my friends. Humility is having rightly placed confidence. That's what humility is. Is having rightly placed confidence. My challenge to you is don't place your confidence in achievements. Place it in what God has done for you. See the God behind the achievements. He is the source of your achievements. It is rightly placed confidence. My friends, be humble and avoid the pride and arrogance of personal success. God has given it to you. He can strip you of it as you will soon hear. Let's look back at the text and see what happens next in the 13th Verse, he says, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. In this verse, Haman expresses ultimate disgust for Mordecai. Remember that he had just listed his achievements and his privilege and his status. Now he makes a statement that I wish to quote in the tone that I imagine he used it. All these achievements that he says, Yet all this is worth nothing to me. As long as I see Mordecai, that Jew, sitting at the king's gate. You might place some emphasis on words in there, man. But look there, you got, you got a nice house, you got a nice car, you got a nice farm. It means nothing. As long as I don't have. Are you going to throw away everything that you've achieved just to get one little thing that will not make your life any better? Check your heart. Remember, I listed all these traits. Here's another trait that we can see in Mordecai. A, poor, a, a proud and arrogant person considers people they don't like as enemies or threats. Haman is consumed with the hatred for Mordecai. He, he, his achievements pale in comparison to his resentment for one man, Mordecai. The statement in verse 13 is driven by deep-rooted hatred. My friends, you need to understand this. You should probably keep a note of it. Hatred is an intoxicating emotion. It has the power to remove rational thought and thus reduce 
people to making statements such as the one Haman made concerning Mordecai. It is an intoxicating emotion. It reduces you to a place of drunkenness. Hatred is described by G.M. Hagen as a tangible measurement of evil in the world. It is a tangible measurement of evil in the world. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology goes on to say that G.M. Hagen's description, a tangible measurement of evil in the world, is a fair assessment of biblical witness for every human has the potential to hate. Every one of us. I think sometimes we use the word hate out of context. Honey, I, 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 love, I just love you. Would you marry me? Would you marry me? Yes. Yes. So she marries me. We walk down the aisle together, we say, I do, and we express love to each other, and then I get so upset, I just, I just hate you. And we still on honeymoon. How, 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 how do you move from so much love on the day with the bells and the whistles and, and the gown and the doves getting let go in the sky and all sorts of stuff, to the next morning you'll be like, I, 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 I hate you. Or because I didn't get one thing? All of us have the potential to hate. But don't let's use the word hate loosely. Hate is a destructive emotion. So this is what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Be sober-minded. Don't be made drunk by this intoxicating emotion. Be sober-minded. To put it out another way, don't be reduced to a state of stupor because of hatred. Think of the people you don't like. Take a moment now and think about it. You know that person. Think about that person you don't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you see that person? You got that person in your head? Right. Now that we've thought of that person we don't like, ask yourself a few questions. Do you consider that person as a threat? your perfect world, or you can come down and mess up my life. Does your blood start to boil when you hear their names? Do you concoct reasons to prove that that person is just an idiot? I got to prove that he's an idiot? A mule? That's not the thinking of a sober-minded person. <laughs> I behave myself. But we go through that. Don't we, 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 we think like that. Though we are Christian, we, we think like that sometimes. We, we try not to use the words that the world has designated as bad, so we use good words to describe people like mule, idiot, stupid, what if we get sarcastic? You, I, I, I have the wisest neighbor. They're so wise, and they list all the stupid things that they do. 
No, we need to be sober-minded. Let me tell you this, my friends. A sober mind is a controlled, disciplined, and sound mind. It is a controlled, disciplined, and sound mind. To train our carnal minds to be sober, we must arrest our thinking. Sometimes the words and actions of others can cause runaway thoughts fueled by our insecurities and fanned by our adversary. The devil just there say, yeah, yeah, get back. <laughs> get back. Remember when you go to school, he said, like, fight, fight. We wanted to see the fight. And then you get in trouble because we went to see the fight. Let me quickly tell you some ways that you can train your mind to be sober. I'm put them on the screen for you. Number one, pause. Pause and put the situation into perspective. According to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32, the Bible says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You know, I, I might feel proud when I can take a whole city. But if I can control myself, I can have a sober mind, I'm better than that one who can take a city. So pause and put the situation into perspective. Here's the second thing. Take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So if you want a sober mind, you, you put the pling in a perspective, and then you cause your thoughts to become captive. You control your thoughts. Here's the, the third thing. Focus on Scripture. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So focus on scripture. Not what's happening around you, the externality, the external things. Number four, practice humility. We must always remember that the person who is causing us grief is not your enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, of over this present darkness, we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, our enemy is not the person we see next to us. We are wrestling against a principality, my friends. Number five, rely on your true source. Not on yourself. In the same Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 now, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You want to control your mind? Remember that your strength is in Christ. And here's the final one. Just talk to God, my friends. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, and all of us should know that by heart. The only three words in that chapter, in that verse, it says prayer or prayer without ceasing. 
So if you're going to take control of your mind, pause and put things into perspective. Take every thought captive. Focus on scripture. Practice humility. Rely on your true source and talk to God. Always remember that God is working behind the scenes. David said in Psalms 46 that God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. He's working behind the scenes. Brothers and sisters, the application here is to be sober-minded. In other words, don't be blinded by hatred. Don't be blinded by hatred, my friends. Eradicate hatred from your arsenal. We shouldn't hate our brothers and our sisters. In other words, hate the devil. Hate what the devil is doing. But recognize that you should love your brothers and your sisters. Before I close, I wish to share one more application with you, and that simply is to be this. Be good. Be good! The last verse. His wife, Zeres, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hang upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. He said this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows built. This last verse reveals his wife and his friends giving him advice that, he, that should, in their opinion, abate his anger. He is advised to have a 50 cubits high gallows built. Now, a cubit, my friends, is about 18 inches, a foot and a half is a cubit. 50 cubits, if you calculate it, so you have to do the long maths. You have to take 18, multiply it by 50, and divide it by 12. I don't know if that's long maths or just simple maths, but by that I get 75. So 50 cubits is about 75 feet tall. That's how high this gallows is going to be. My research proves to me that the average floor of a building is about 10 feet high. So here, this ungodly advice is telling Haman to build a gallows that is about seven and a half stories up. And the reason why we're going to build a gallows so big is that when you execute Mordecai, everybody will see. And guess who they will be praising? Haman, Haman, Haman. Oh, hell, Haman. It's feeding into his pride and his arrogance. What these people was doing was feeding Haman's pride. The advice was to build the gallows. Now they want to tell this. Remember I talked about the vizier having the the authority to use the signet ring to seal stuff. His position in the empire meant that he didn't have to ask permission to build the gallows. So the advice was go and build it. He had it built. His position also meant that he didn't have to go and present a case to the king. Just go and tell the king, execute Mordecai on the gallows and it will be done. After all, do you know who I am? I'm the vizier. I'm the second in command. I'm the prime minister. Listen to this advice. They even advise this man that after you have the man executed, 
a little old Jew, have him executed. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. In other words, just kill the man alone and have fun. Such an execution would appease him and cause his anger to subside. And he could go on with his life totally unaffected by the evil that he has just done. My friends, listen to this. Instead of concocting evil against others, I want to encourage you to be good. Don't be easily influenced by evil advice. You know that Haman didn't have to kill Mordecai or even the Jews? These people weren't taking anything away from him, you know. In Barbadian parlance, I can say that the Jews wasn't taking the food out of your mouth. No, Barbadian said, well, you, you taking food out of my mouth? Okay, y'all probably don't know that. In St. Vincent, because that's the next biggest population here in St. Vincent, they were saying, well, the people in Cardinal, you buy a fruit tree? In other words, they ain't taking nothing from you. What's it, what's it first? My friends, God opposes the proud and the arrogant. In Psalm 138, verse 6, David reminds us that though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty or the proud, he knows from afar off. To put that differently, the proud is not welcome into God's presence. Proverbs 16, and verse 18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Bible is packed with examples of people who fell because of their pride. And usually, it's just one little thing that causes the proud to fall. Follow me quickly. Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2, he asks a question. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Pride and arrogance. What was the result? The firstborn of all Egyptians lost their lives. Hezekiah in 2 Kings and 20 demonstrated pride and arrogance by showing off the gold and the silver and the possessions that were found in his treasure. You know what had happened before that? He was sick. He was dying. The prophet Isaiah went to him and says, you know what? You're going to die. You're going to die. And the Bible tells me that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he, he prayed and he cried and he asked God to spare his life. And, and then what he did, he reminded God of the times when he walked faithfully. And as Isaiah was walking, leaving the, the court, he was in the outer court of the palace, leaving the king. The Lord came to Isaiah and says, go back and talk to the king. A new word. He goes back to the king and says, the Lord has heard your prayer and your cry. And the Lord will add 15 years to your life. My God, this man knew I had 15 more years. It was a sure word. But what happened? He became proud. He became arrogant. And he started to show off all the possessions of the palace. And guess what happened? Because of that, the word came back to him again and said to him that the children of Israel will be carried away into exile, into the land of Babylon. Two more examples. King Nebuchadnezzar. He created a golden image and he asked everybody to bow to it when they hear the music start. The harp and the lyre and the horns and the flutes and all of this. 
Somebody went and said to him, listen, I got three young men down here. Shout out me, shout out Bendigo. Who wouldn't bow down when they hear the instruments playing? He sent, he called these three boys and these boys said, we are not going to bow. Listen to the words, if we perish, we perish. Even if the Lord don't deliver us, we will not bow. Sounds like the words of Esther. And if you can ask this question, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This man was flying into the face of God. This is in Daniel chapter 3. And the result of that, he was embarrassed by the God who delivered the boys out of the fire. Eventually, he was humiliated to the point of eating grass like a mere animal. They said that his fingernails and his toenails started to grow like, like mad and he became like an animal just scratching his way on all fours because he was proud and arrogant. Then right after him in Daniel chapter 5 is King Belshazzar who revealed a proud and arrogant disposition when he used the temples, gold, and silver goblets. He didn't even bring them there. Nebuchadnezzar brought those things from the temple in Jerusalem brought them to Babylon and now you have Belshazzar deciding I, I want to have a feast he brought out God's utensils and he used them and while he's sitting with his friends and he's drinking and, and all that the Bible says that the hand writing he saw the hand writing on the wall and this hand that was writing on the wall foretold his destruction but he couldn't understand that so he called for a wise man the wise man came and said this is what the handwriting is saying it's saying your days are numbered you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting your kingdom is divided and is given to the Medes and the Persians one act of arrogance caused his kingdom to be divided finally Haman's pride and arrogance caused him to want to kill the Jews in the Persian Empire, as we are reading right now. This is the result. The result, well, you have to tune in to another episode of God behind the scenes to find out what happened. Or just go home and read it. I prefer you to read it and then come and hear what God will do. Loved ones, as I close, I want to tell you that God opposes the proud and the arrogant. My challenge to us today is to replace pride and arrogance and to take heed to the instructions to be stable. To be humble. To be sober. And to be good. Because if you are not doing these things, God will oppose you. Thanks for listening to this message by Derek Ward, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel, Barbados, located on Goodland Road, St. Michael. Check us out online at www.harvestbarbados.org or on any of our social media platforms at Harvest Barbados. If you're looking for a church family to call home, we invite you to join us this and every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for our high-impact service where we lift high the name of Jesus in worship and proclaim the authority of God's Word without apology. Until next time, we just want you to know that you are loved.